Liz, good to see everybody again tonight. Thankful always for the privilege to be with people who love the Lord and who want to honor Him. And what a great strength it is to all of us to be able to gather together with folks like that to worship God. So thankful for the start we had this morning and we have another good crowd tonight and so thankful for this congregation. Um, some other people that are very dear to me are here tonight and I'm thankful my mom and dad are both here. So a lot of you haven't gotten to meet them before, so I'm very, very happy to have them here. They still live on the, on the home farm up in Delta County, and so they're here tonight, and I'm glad of that. And then the Battertons are filling up the second from the front pew, or trying to anyway. Um, so glad to see them. And in case you don't know who they are, you should. But uh, that, those are uh, Keith and Beth Shirtliff's daughter, son-in-law, and grandkids. So, and, and most of you knew Keith and Beth, so, so thankful to have them here with us tonight as well. As we talk about building up the body of Christ and the importance of that in our lives, tonight I want to focus on something that you might not first think of in regard to that, but I want to begin in this way. These were two very dear friends of mine, and Brother Leon knew them. This is Herschel and Maudie Miller. I took this picture in about the year 2013. This was perhaps the last gospel meeting they ever got to attend before their health was too poor. But they lived in El Reno, Oklahoma. A few months later, Sister Maudie passed away at the age of 96. And then just a handful of months after that, Brother Herschel passed away at the age of 100. When she passed away, he was 100, she was 96, and they had been married a little over 80 years. Now, when you read Bible genealogies, get ready, because this is going to be very similar. At the time of, of her passing, they had nine children... All the children were still living. They had only at that point lost one in-law. They had 26 grandchildren, 75 great-grandchildren, 57 great-great-grandchildren, and yes, it was quite a funeral. And there was one great-great-grandchild on the way at that time. If you're, doing, if you're keeping up, keep the score at home, that's 167 direct blood descendants, not including, as we say in East Texas, all the in-laws and the outlaws, 157. I've never seen anything like it. But the most remarkable thing about Herschel and Maudie Miller was not their ages, how long they were married, how many descendants they had, and so many of them still living at that time. That was not what was impressive about them. Here were two people who loved the Lord. Here were two people who did His will. Here were two people who for so many years set an example of what godly marriage is supposed to be. I'm going to ask you to turn with me tonight to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to talk about marriage by looking at a passage that itself is not about marriage. But that has a lot of rich importance that can have so much positive impact on all human relationships, including marriage. I want to talk with you tonight about Beatitudes 
of marriage, how those can apply to marriage in particular. Let's read the text first of all, beginning with verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he continues to elaborate on that last one. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then a beatitude of Jesus that is not found in that passage. We won't turn there. But in Acts 20 verse 35, Paul also says, just as the Lord Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I want to talk with you tonight about how those principles can have an amazing impact on any marriage. The first one that we notice has to do with humility. We see in verse 3 <clears throat> that it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, poor in spirit is the opposite of being full of yourself. Just pour all that out. That's not what matters. I need to be empty of myself, and I need to be filled with God. I need to be filled with His Word. I need to be filled with the activities of what He would have me be. My life needs to not be about what I think I ought to be or what I want to be in some prideful sort of way. My life needs to be all about being a vessel filled with His will and doing His work as I go through this world. My friends, arrogant people, have a difficult time getting along with anybody. And that includes with the person they're married to. So, for example, you know somebody's just as arrogant as they can be. You, you just love to go and spend time with them, don't you? You just text them all the time. You talk to them on the phone. You go over to their house. You just love that, don't you? No, you don't. <laughs> you try to stay as far away as you can. A again, as we see in these texts, you don't want to touch them with a 10-foot pole. Get them, get them as far away from you as you can because that's not the kind of personality that you enjoy interacting with. The kind of person who knows everything and who is smarter than you and who loves looking down their nose at other people and when you're not looking, and maybe sometimes when you are, they like to look down their nose at you. Nobody wants to be around somebody like that. How do you think it'd be to be married to somebody like that? Somebody who in their marriage, who in the, the conduct of their family, who in everything they do, it's all about them. They are, the, they are the center and circumference of everything about their marriage relationship. How much fun would that be? That is completely destructive to everything that is good. You know, the reality is that we must have a sense of humility as disciples of Jesus in this world. But when you're married, married people know each other in a more intimate way in every aspect than any other two people possibly can. 
Marriage is the closest of human relationships. It is the one where the sharing of everything is on the table all the time. And if one person in that marriage relationship, if it's all about them, how can they share in the way that God says they should? The Bible says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So there is a servant leadership role that he has. That is not a source of arrogant pride, though. That is an incredibly weighty responsibility. On the shoulders of husbands is the responsibility to be spiritual leaders, to be protectors, to be providers, to be looking out always not for themselves but for other people. That's a hard job. And it takes humility on the part of a husband to do that in the way that it, that it should be done. But it also takes humility on the part of a wife to take that submissive role in relationship to him and to humble herself in that way. And folks, life is not a competition. And marriage is certainly not a competition as to who is more capable or who is smarter or who is who is uh, able to do things that the other can't do. That's not what marriage is about. Marriage is about two people humbly serving each other, just like Jesus, our model in everything we need to be doing. And in fact, when the Apostle Paul talked about marriage, he talked about the love of Jesus. He gave himself for the church. But while it's unnamed, doesn't that love include the amazing sense of humility that he had to leave heavenly glory, to be clothed with human flesh, to suffer all that he did in life, and then go to the cross and be awfully executed because of his desire to be of service to those who would be his bride, the church. That's the kind of humility that we need in marriage and the kind of humility that Jesus displayed on behalf of us all. Next on the list, I'm I'm just uh, giving summaries of these, and that is uh, to have a sense of of good values, of godly values. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, we look at life and we see the things that, that take place in this world, and while we want to keep our chin up, and we want to look at the positive, don't we? And we want to see that the opportunities that there are in life, isn't that the case? But can we ignore the difficult side of life? No. And the most difficult side of life has to do with people and their relationship or lack thereof with God. My friend, when, when sin is committed by somebody else or by, or by me, by our mate or by ourselves, whoever sin is committed by, that is always a source of sorrow agony and going back to the first one of humility and of repentance if we want the comfort of God we've got to have our values in the right place so that the most important things we rejoice over and the most important things we feel great sorrow concerning so that we can be of service to help the good move forward and to help the bad have an opportunity to stop so that godly change in our lives and in the lives of our mates can be that much more a possibility. Rose-colored glasses may make us feel better temporarily, but to see life for what it really is, 
How important is that? And to see with sorrow the sadness that is around us so that we can help in a constructive way by doing right ourselves and by helping our mate do the same thing. In other words, there are going to be times with a sense of sorrow we're going to have to go to our mate and say, Honey, I need to talk to you about something. And with humility and with godliness and with deep sorrow over sin, whether theirs or ours, to be openly conversant with one another about serious things in our lives and in our marriages that can be obstacles to us serving God and consequently obstacles to us being husband and wife like God wants us to be. We must be willing to deal with those things in a godly way That helps our mate overcome. That helps us overcome. And that helps marriage be godly and strong. And what a blessing to have that opportunity. But in order to do that, we're probably going to need a healthy dose of this. And that is grace under pressure. You look at verse 5 and it says, Blessed are are the the meek, the gentle. Uh, Yours may have another word in, in place of that. But I like to describe meekness or this gentleness as as grace under pressure. Life's tough. And all kinds of obstacles get thrown in our way. Some of those obstacles, we, we pick up ourselves and throw them right in our own path and make it difficult for ourselves. And sometimes we say, that wasn't real smart. And sometimes we blind ourselves so much we don't even see what an obstacle we placed right there. But then sometimes the obstacle is placed in our paths by those dearest to us, for our lesson's purposes tonight, by our mate. And in times like that, we've got to have the grace and the time of pressure to handle it in a way that will be constructive and we can move forward rather than this being such a devastating thing that we could never turn back from it. Let me tell you something, guys. It doesn't really matter what it is. It doesn't really matter what it is doesn't matter how serious the problem. With God's help and with our willingness to do God's will, there are lots of broken pieces that can be picked up and put back together. But it's going to take a sense of grace in those times of pressure for us to be helpful along that line. And we always need to remember That while at times it may be our mate who's the problem in this situation, how many other times will the shoe be on the other foot? And it'll be me instead. And rather than look at what you did, which may be grave in many cases, may we never blind ourselves to our own responsibility when it comes to how we conduct ourselves in those ways. It can be very difficult at times. But how important that we do. You know, I used to, I used to wear these rose-colored glasses a little bit. And with these rose-colored glasses, I thought, you know, I'm going to go along in life. And, and uh, at a certain point in life, everything's just going to be great. It's all going to be beautiful. It's going to be roses, daffodils, sunshine. Uh, and and my, my little granddaughter, Ruby, her favorite thing in the entire world is rainbow unicorns. I don't even know what that is. Okay. Rainbow unicorns. But that's what it's going to be. Life's just going to be amazing. And here's the experience in life that I have noticed. 
There are times in life, uh, let me say, there are moments in life when that's exactly what it is. And then there are those other moments. And it's not. We have to be balanced as people, as godly people who put the Lord first and to see life for what it is so that when those times that are not come upon us, we can handle those with grace as well and be balanced and help one another move forward in a godly way. And obviously, we could have old lessons on all of these, and I'm just being very brief with everyone. The next one is in verse, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. My friend, the most important thing of our life should be to be right with God, to do those things that give Him honor and Him glory to do those things that are consistent with His revealed will so that we are striving in all that we are to have a character that is being transformed every day, developed so that in our hearts we are more like Jesus tomorrow than we were today. And in that gradual process of time as we grow spiritually to be more like Jesus, He will work with us and His people will strengthen us and life's ups and downs will sober us so that we can grow to be more like Him every day in life that we go through. And how strong does that make our marriages if at the heart of our marriage is, what does God say? What does God want? What does God expect? Any marriage that falls apart has lost sight of that. Any marriage that grows to be what God wants it to be keeps that at the fore. And at the times in their marriage when when that is not in the front as it should be, they will get back to that pretty quickly so that more consistently, God's will is the most important thing about who they are. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're not going out of Matthew very much tonight, but we are going to for a moment. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Every time I do a a wedding ceremony for a couple, um, there are are always certain expectations that I I have. And one of them is they've got to agree to sit down with me for four hours, not in a row, but sit down with me for one-hour sessions, and and we're going to talk about marriage. And I've got a lot of things I want to talk to them about when it comes to that. But if they, they say, no, we're, we don't have time for that or we don't want to do that, well, you just find somebody else to do your ceremony because if we, if we can't sit down and talk about marriage at a time when we can both think things through, because you can't think things through in front of a bunch of people. You know that, right? That's one of the reasons preachers need to be prepared because if you get in front of a bunch of people, you can't think things through. You better be prepared when you get up here. Because emotions will get going and thoughts will get going and and there's rabbit trails all over the place. So you have to be prepared ahead of time. So so we need to talk and there are a lot of things we need to talk through and so we do that. And I always make this point. The most important facet of marriage is the one that most people in the world don't understand. And that is the primary purpose of marriage is not procreation, it's not communication, it's not companionship. The primary thing about marriage 
is two people helping each other draw nearer to the Lord. To serve Him well and to help each other get to heaven. That's the focus of marriage. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, Peter brings that to our minds. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may without a word be won by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Here we see that even though she's married to a man who's not serious, not serious about serving the Lord, her primary job in marriage is to be a godly example to him so that hopefully he, he may be one to the Lord. And, and if her talking to him about the Lord doesn't do it, he says, you know, sometimes the only thing you've got left is the example that you set. And a godly example is very powerful, and sometimes it's very persuasive. So even in the case when, when two people are married and one of them is not serious about the Lord, the main purpose of the one who serves the Lord is to help their mate see what it means to be a godly person. Come down to verse 7. Let's talk about the husbands. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. And then it says, and, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. And there, there's a lot in that verse. But bottom line is, a man is to conduct himself toward his wife in such a way that the spiritual opportunities are what he's all about in his marriage. The spiritual thing, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Uh, you are fellow heirs of the grace of life. And so the spiritual dimension of marriage is the most important thing. We must strive to do right as individual people who happen to be married. And then we also must strive to do right as people who are married and we are one flesh with our mate so that we're trying to bring out the things of God in them by living those things ourselves. That is what marriage is all about. But how are we going to do that without a charitable spirit? In verse 7, blessed are the merciful for going back to Matthew chapter 5 again. Blessed are the merciful, verse 7, for they shall receive mercy. We must have a charitable spirit about ourselves. There are two things about that I want to mention. One of those is this, and that is we've got to be willing to be forgiving. We must be willing to be forgiving. Even in godly marriage, sometimes one or the other or both don't act like they should. And the worst circumstance of all is, is the storm that is produced when all of those things happen at the same time. He's not acting like he should. She's not acting like she should. And they're not acting like they should toward each other. Well, what a storm that is for a marriage to have to try to endure. We must be willing to forgive, to be willing to put things behind us to be willing to move on. My favorite passage on this is Matthew chapter 18. If you want to look at Matthew chapter 18 with me for just a few moments. Matthew 18, it seems, is all about dealing with sin. And we come down to verse 21 and, and we 
read about forgiveness and Peter says, how often should my, should I, my brother sin against me and me forgive him? Up to seven times? The Lord says, no, 70 times seven. We're going to take the number seven, the, the perfect number, and we're going to multiply that. And then we're going to throw a power number in with it. Throw the number 10 in there. And so instead of 490 being the answer, the answer is forgive completely. Be willing to put those things behind you. Then Jesus tells a, a wonderful parable that we're not going to look into to great extent. But notice in verse 23, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. Okay, now, this is going to take the full spectrum of Arnold, Walker, Arnold, and company to figure this, okay? It will. It'll take the full spectrum of this because that's a big number. 10,000 talents is like you were to say uh, 11 billion. Okay, well, that's not a real number, but, but if you were to say that, what would you be saying? You've got to be willing to forgive to the nth degree. That's what Jesus is saying. But let's put a little math on this, okay? Let's put a little math on this. A talent was the equivalent of 6,000 days wages. 6,000 days wages. 6,000 days wages, but we have 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. So that is 60 million days wages. Now, I want to use really conservative numbers, actually, because of the last three years, these numbers are not correct. But turn the clock back about five years, these have been pretty good numbers for what we're saying. So let's say that, that uh, an hourly worker, we're going to be real conservative here, made $10 an hour. Let's be real conservative. $10 an hour, that's $80 a day. Okay? It's $80 a day. That's conservative. In fact, it's not even realistic in, in, in the climate today. But we're using conservative numbers. At that number, you know how much money that is? 10,000 talents, you know how much money that is? $4.8 billion. $4.8 billion. That's how much this guy owed. Now, I, I can hardly say $4.8 billion, <laughs> much less try to figure out how much money that is. I remember when I was in elementary, the teacher said, now, a certain number, I don't even remember what the number was, a certain number, if you take dollar bills and you stack them on top of each other, like reach to the moon. I forget what the number was, but it was unbelievable. That's the kind of number we're looking at here. This is an unbelievable number. And what's he saying? He's saying that's how much this guy owed. But then this guy approaches the king and says, listen, can you have, have mercy? Be patient with me. By the way, I don't care how patient you are with somebody, you don't pay back $4.8 billion just like I don't know what the deficit is today, you don't pay back that much money. It just doesn't happen. It's impossible. It is fiscally, financially impossible. And that's what he's saying here. Here's a fellow who owes a sum of money he could never repay. He could live uh, for a million years he'd never repay it because that's the kind of sum of money we're talking about here. But what does the king tell him? He begs for mercy. He begs for time. And the king says, you know what? Just erase that debt. Just erase that debt. The fellow turns right around, finds somebody that owes him a, a significant sum, but nowhere near that, grabs him by the shirt collar and says, pay me back. And the guy says, give me back, give me time to ask him the same thing that this fellow asked the king. 
And he says, nope, I'm having you thrown in jail till you pay me back. In other words, you're going to be in jail forever because I'm never forgiving you. No mercy, no grace. And then the king finds out. And what does the king say? The king says, I'm going to have done to you what you did to him because you showed no mercy. You were unwilling to forgive. And what point was Jesus making with that? The point Jesus was making is you and I are the servant who owe the Lord $4.8 billion and we have nothing to pay. There's no way we can come close to even beginning to pay that. But yet the Lord is willing to be merciful for us through the blood of his son and wash away that debt which is unfathomable. And if we turn around to somebody who has done something bad to us and are unwilling to let that go what's the Lord's view of us at this point if I'm unwilling to forgive them for what they've done then the Lord is going to be unwilling to forgive me of what I've done if you come down to the very end of the parable in verse 34 and his Lord moved with anger handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. That is a parable with a poetic description of hell. Verse 35, Jesus' comment is, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So we must be willing to forgive. That is an important facet of marriage. If we go through life holding grudges against other people, especially against our mate. How destructive is that to our own hearts and lives and to our marriage and to our children as well? Second thing about charitableness that I would say is we must also be willing to give the benefit of the doubt. Some people are so incredibly suspicious-minded. And, and I'm always curious. Okay, here's somebody, and it doesn't, doesn't matter what you say. I know what you meant by that. Yeah, you're not going to fool me. I know what you meant by that. And, and they navigate life like that. And, and here's what's going through my mind. Okay, it, sir, if you are so suspicious-minded of everybody that you meet and everybody that you know, and, and somebody always has, always has a bad motive for what they said or did, even though you can't read their hearts, if that's how you view everybody, then, okay, sir, then tell me about your own heart toward other people because I think that's really what we're looking at here. Somebody who's always suspicious-minded of everybody else, maybe you ought to be suspicious-minded of them. Maybe their motives are not always right, and they're judging your motives based on theirs, and theirs aren't good, so now they think yours aren't either. We need to be willing be charitable, merciful, and unwilling to jump to the worst conclusion about somebody else. We w must be willing to believe the best until proven otherwise. And in that way, we're able to bring the best out in others. Then the next one that I want us to notice is to have pure motives, to be earnest, to be sincere. We need to be so transparent in our relationship with our mate, we're hiding nothing. 
We have nothing to hide. We're open with each other. And we discuss things in a, in a godly way. I, I actually heard of a situation one time where, where a lady had a, had a three-point plan for how to buy something if she didn't want her husband to know how much she spent. I'm not kidding. This is not made up. This is for real. This is the very opposite of what Jesus is saying here, so, so don't do this. But three-point plan. Here's what she did. She would pay cash for a third of it. No trail of that. She would pay credit card for a third of it. Oh, there's a trail for that. And then she would pay a check for a third of it, and there's a trail for that. But she's trying to cover her bases, so he, he has no idea. So you've got this piece of information and that piece of information and no information because cash is pretty anonymous. Three-point plan for buying something. Is that, is that pure in heart? No, it's not. We need to be transparent and open and have a good heart and our mate should be able to trust us because we are trustworthy in everything that we do. And then we have the peacemakers. Difficult times will come in marriage. There will be fussing. There will be a little feuding. It'll get difficult sometimes. You're going to be in a bad mood someday. You're going to be testy and your mate's going to be testy back. And, you know, these kind of things are going to happen. And we need to be sure that we're not letting that kind of mentality be what rules us. But rather a peaceable spirit where we're trying to make peace where it is not there. And thus be a strength to the entire family. In light of that. Does your mate have any buttons that, you know, if I push that button, it's going to set him off? So she has this button, and if I push that one, oh, it's going to be a bad day. You know anything about those buttons? Well, my mate just doesn't have any buttons. Yeah, your mate has buttons, okay? <laughs> I don't care who your mate is. I don't care how godly your mate is. Your mate has, to, has a set of buttons. You know why those buttons are there, though? Those buttons are there because your mate has areas in his or her life where they struggle. Areas where they don't feel good about themselves. They don't feel good about their capabilities. They don't feel good about their past. They don't feel good about their present. There are weaknesses that they have. And in their minds, the weakness may be huge and you might not even know that it's there. But they know that it is. They have places where they feel uncertain about themselves. And if there's something about your mate, you know, you know, I know if I say this, it's going to set her off. That's why that button's there. She's got a struggle in that area. He's got a problem he wrestles with in that area. Now, if you know that your mate has areas of weakness and struggle, what do you not do? You don't push those buttons. Why not? Because you love your mate too much to put them through that pain that they will feel if you push that button. Rather, knowing that's the case, what does a godly mate want to do? To strengthen their mate in that area where they feel weak, where the mate feels weak and uncertain and bolster them there so that the button is not as glaring 
maybe in time that button might even diminish to a degree that it's not a problem anymore. You see, our job as mates is not to find our, our mate's weak part and jab them. Our job as mates is to find where they are weak and make them stronger. And if that's how you treat your mate, how do you think your mate's going to treat you? Probably going to try to help you be stronger too. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And then we have the convicted, those who are persecuted, and they stand by their principles, and they don't give in to ungodliness. They are convicted to that. And, and if the mate is the source of spiritual discouragement, then with a godly spirit, they will still do what is right. And they won't do what is right in a spiteful way as to try to say, okay, I'm going to do the right thing, but I'm going to do it in a way where I'm jabbing my mate at the same time. No, I'm going to do what's right because it's right. My conviction is to honor the Lord, and I will serve Him rather than letting anything or anyone get in my way and do that with a sweet-spirited, godly disposition like Jesus did. And in marriage, that is also a very important thing. Well, I've got one more for you. I want to spend a little time on this one, though, and that is to be generous. Uh, we didn't turn there, but Acts 20 and verse 35 says that we are to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, for he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, marriage is viewed by some as a relationship of what's in this for me. Because, you know, life is all about me and, and everything else is all about me. And so my marriage is all about me too. And therefore, what am I going to get out of this if I, if I marry this person? Or what am I getting out of this from the person that I'm married to? That, that's, the way, that's the way some people navigate marriage. Okay, so question. Jesus is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. Did Jesus approach the relationship he would have with the church as, okay, now what am I going to get out of this relationship with these people if I redeem them? What, 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 am, I, what am I going to get out of this? Is that how Jesus approached that? Or did not Jesus approach that relationship with, these people have nothing they can give me, nothing. In fact, these folks are lost in sin. So as a result of that, rather than thinking about me and what would be comfortable for me, which for Jesus, by the way, would have been to stay in heaven and never be clothed with human flesh and never suffer as he did under the sun and never be crucified for the forgiveness of the sins of the world. It would have been a lot more comfortable for him if he hadn't have gone through that. But rather than seeking his own comfort, Jesus sought to be the servant leader of all. And he gave everything so we could even be the church well folks that's how Jesus wants husbands and wives to love each other even if I can't get anything out of this relationship I have with my mate I'm going to treat my mate a certain way because that's what Jesus did I want to be in my marriage what Jesus was and is to the church. That kind of commitment, devotion, sacrificial love 
What an incredible blessing that is. I could tell you story after story, and you could tell me stories in the same way of people who were married and there were serious physical, mental, or emotional struggles that came to be. And it was such a debilitating situation that one mate had to do all the serving because the other mate was so incredibly debilitated. Folks, that's love. That's love. That's commitment. That's what Jesus did. And when we're blessed to be in a marriage relationship where our partner is still sound in body, mind, and spirit, how grateful we should be that we can serve them in a godly way. And rather than viewing marriage as what's in it for me, we view marriage as I need to be like Jesus and how he is with his bride. That is how I will be with my mate as well. I had a good friend and his, um, his dad told him one time, he said, son, he said, don't make the same mistake that your mom and I did. He said, your mom and I, when we were raising the three of you, they had three children, when we were raising the three of you, our lives revolved entirely around the three of you. And he said, we never took the time to continue to build our marriage relationship. And then when you guys grew up and moved on, he said, we were left there looking at each other and we didn't even know each other anymore. He said, don't make the same mistake that we did. He said, all along the way, continue to build your marriage. Because your marriage is till death do us part. Your children will leave at some point. And you know, in addition to that, how can we be the kind of mom and dad that God wants us to be if we're not the kind of husband and wife that God wants us to be? How can we set an example for what our children will see that marriage is and that marriage should be if we're not modeling that in the way we interact with our mate? And how can we have a solid foundation for them to have the security and the comfort and the strength and the education they need growing up if we're not showing them what it means to be a godly man and a godly woman who in sometimes difficult situations with our mate and with our family have to apologize and have to discuss difficult things. And have to learn to navigate those difficult things in a godly way. I tell you, godly marriage is the primary incubator in which godly children can be raised. And even if they grow up and don't decide to do the will of God, what a wonderful gift they had and blessing to at least have had the opportunity to see godly marriage like it ought to be modeled as they were growing up be generous with your time be generous with your mate be generous like jesus was and that will be a great strength to your family oliver murray used to tell a story and probably several of you have heard this story before about a gentleman who was 
always at services with his wife. His wife was a, was a Christian. She was a member of a congregation, and, and he, would, he would come with her uh, to just about every service. And he had not, to that point, obeyed the gospel. It had been a number of years. And every, every new preacher that moved to town or every visiting preacher who came through to do a gospel meeting, it kind of got to be a challenge. Okay, so what can I say to try to move this guy, try to get this guy to obey the gospel? Well, at the invitation, at the end of a service, one day, finally, here he comes down the aisle. And he comes to the front, and he gives the preacher his hand, and he says, I want to obey the gospel. I want to be baptized into Christ. So he took his confession, baptized him, and the preacher couldn't wait to ask him later, what did I finally say, hear the pride in that, what did I finally say that got you convinced to move and obey the gospel? And the fella, fella did what, you know, sometimes we preachers is good for us. He said, you didn't say anything. He said, it was the godly example of my wife all these years. That finally got through. My friends, may we be the godly example for our mate. So that if our mate has never become a Christian, we at least give them a fighting chance through our example to obey the gospel. And if our mate has already obeyed the gospel, may we be the kind of husband, the kind of wife that will strengthen our mate's faith. What a wonderful opportunity for them to then strengthen ours as we strengthen theirs. If you need prayers tonight, we hope that you'll come. If you have never obeyed the gospel, we would hope that you would make this the time when you put on Christ in baptism. If we can help you, we hope you'll come while we stand and sing. Thank you.